up everyone, welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. I'm not joined by Kieran and Nate today. They've both been uh, incarcerated for unspecified reasons, but they will be back very shortly. Right, we have a special episode today. The issue over trans rights is one which has become highly charged online, to say the least. It's a debate which has been defined by you know vitriol, culture war tropes about trans women u- using female spaces such as bathrooms and swimming pools. I guess the centrepiece or central issue of the debate is the allegation that trans rights and women's rights are somehow in conflict. And it's a debate that lots of people shy away from you know, precisely because it's been so charged. Consequently, it's one that I would say many people just simply don't understand as a result. And I absolutely include myself in that population. So this episode aims to explain some of the issues and I'm delighted to be joined today by Crash. Crash is a law student at Cardiff University and director of Cardiff Trans Singers. Welcome Crash. Hi, welcome. Thanks very much for coming. And we're also jo- joined by Mabley Jones. Mabley is a an activist, just an yeah. all, all, all around <laughs> activist. <laughs> Thanks for coming Mabley. Thank you, thanks for having me. Okay, great. Right, so I guess one of the places to start is to talk about uh, descriptions or basic explainers so crash why didn't you uh, explain i guess what it means, what it, what is it to be trans yeah i think um yeah sometimes people get a bit worried about the terminology but i mean trans just refers to um, anyone whose whose gender identity is different to or um or it does not sit comfortably with the sex they were assigned to birth so everyone um, when they're born or sometimes before they're born gets assigned a sex um, and that'll be you know doctors taking a look at your body and saying you're male or you're female and then some people when they grow up get a sense of their own identity and realize it doesn't fit with whatever that label was so I am trans because um, I was assigned male at birth but that doesn't that doesn't reflect who I am that doesn't reflect my identity um, so I identify as non-binary um, and when we talk about trans identities, you know, we, you can talk about trans men and trans women, but also as well as, you know, those identities, there are also people who don't identify within that male, female binary um, and, and non-binary is the umbrella term that covers those people um, who who identify outside that binary. That's a very, that's a very good explainer. Like, you know, because on Twitter, people use pronouns on their profile, for example. Does that stem from the need to define non-binary or binary? <laughs> I think it's been nice to see people people share their pronouns more commonly and not just trans people sharing um, their pronouns, but also cis people as well. And by, by cis, I mean people who aren't trans. And that comes from the fact that when we talk about other people, at least in English, you have to use a pronoun that has a certain connotation of gender you know you have to say she or he um to talk about somebody and so often people make assumptions about how someone would like to be referred to and those assumptions might be wrong um especially for trans people and so that's why it's become become more common to share their pronouns and I think a lot of trans women will use the pronoun she a lot of trans men will use the pronoun he but it it doesn't have to track people's gender identity. Um, you might be, um, you might identify as a man, but say, I actually want people to use they, for example, to refer to me. Um, and 
I think that's become a lot more common recently, people using they as a kind of neutral pronoun um, to refer to, you know, just one person. And a lot of non-binary people use they, but not all non-binary people use they. I'm happy with people using they or she to refer to me, as long as people don't call me he, which I really hate. So those are my preferences. Those are that's, Or at least that's, those are the pronouns that I like to be used for me. That's great. Thanks for clearing that up and explaining it. So at, at the heart of being trans then is a, it's not an argument, it's, it's the idea that, you know, gender is a social and cultural construct not related to biological sex. Is that an accurate way of... Uh, yeah, I mean, when you look into the theory of it, I think people have been saying that gender is a social construct without necessarily even thinking about trans experiences that much at all. You know, this idea of gender being a social construct is often associated with that that feminist claim that actually the way that men and women are defined in our society and their roles and the inequality isn't to do with biology. It's to do with how society treats people and how society organises different groups of people. And so that's where this idea of gender being a social construct is, because when you accept that it's a social construct, then it's something we can change and, and we can try and fix to improve the situation for women. So there's nothing about people's biology that says that men have to be breadwinners and women have to be housewives. And I think that's where that claims come from. But I'd say, you know, people have different theories or ways of thinking about what it is to be trans. But I think at the heart, it's just the idea that some people have a sense of their own identity that is different to this label given to them from when they were born. And they want to live in accordance with that identity in order to be happy and healthy. And you can add kind of different bits on top of that to kind of fill out whatever theory you want to create. But for me, the theories of why people are trans or what it means to be trans aren't as important as just making sure that trans people have the, the freedom and respect to live happy and healthy lives just like anyone else can. Well, that's an amazing way of uh, of summing it up. I mean, I have to confess at, at, at its core, and when I speak to people about it, my friends, I think a fundamental human concept about being able to flourish or to have a healthy life, most people are like, well, that seems absolutely reasonable. And comp- the issue, obviously, in the UK, and the reason that is as you say, that things that have muddied that extremely basic fundamental point about um, human dignity and rights and flourishing, well, it essentially stems from the issue I mentioned in the introduction about this alleged conflict between, you know, trans people being able to do this and, you know, the the rights of of women. So I thought it might be a a good time now to just dive straight into how that's come about. Um, So, been reading an article by Dr. Sophie Lewis in the New York Times um, that Mabley recommended about, I guess, the the nature of the debate in the UK and how the issue the issues have become dominated by trans exclusionary uh, radical feminists, also known as as TERFs, and the the issues flare up about to access to women's only spaces. So there was an in- uh, incident in a Lido or a public pool in London, which was women traditionally women's only. Certain, I think, uh, prominent feminists happened to use this pool and and kicked up a, a big fuss about you know uh, trans women using it as well. 
in America, it's become, you know, the bathroom wars, you know, trans women using bathrooms has, has become a an alt-right, a culture war trope pushed by, like, evangelical right-wing Christians. Um, it's And it's just it, fascinating reading this article about how, how the debate has sort of snowballed in the UK and got out of hand. And what I was interested in in reading this article was about how Dr. Lewis basically claims that it's a very culturally specific thing to happen. You know, this is a nationally specific thing to to the UK, you know, in, in America and in many other countries like Ireland. Feminists tend to be trans inclusionary. It's mainly in the UK where trans exclusionary feminism has become, well, is now the dominant form um, and is extremely prominent in the British media um, and particularly within the erstwhile progressive elements like The Guardian. I was wondering if you could just, well, if we could all talk, talk a little bit about, you know, how that, how this has come to pass and how, as you said, as Crash said, the, the very fundamental point about people just wanting to live their lives has become, has got lost. Okay, yeah. Um, well, the first thing that I'd say is that talking about, you know, trans-exclusionary feminism or, or, or turfism, trans-exclusionary radical feminism. Um, I mean, the, the terms are quite contested, like it's often called gender critical. Air quotes, I realise you're just recording the audio. That was in air quotes. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of trans people are critical of gender and probably a bit more critical about gender. Um, yeah. <laughs> this movement. But there's, um, the, the first thing that I'd say is that although it looked dominant, if you look uh, in the in the the mainstream media or in the or in, on social media, I would not say that these are really very widespread views mm-hmm. in society at large or in social movements more generally, or even in feminist spaces and in, in women's spaces. So, for example, when some of this controversy was kicking off a couple of years ago, when the um, consultation on reforms for the Gender Recognition Act was released, we saw Welsh women's charities in Wales coming together and and writing a statement, welcoming the consultation, supporting the need for a better system of gender recognition, and also recognising the importance of women's spaces and feminist movements, treating trans women as women, including them in their activism, recognising the specific problems that can be experienced by trans women as part of an intersectional feminist movement. And in the vast majority of feminist spaces, I would say that absolutely is the mindset and the modus operandi. And where the disconnect is, is this small number of connected campaigners, often very prominent press positions or media positions, and uh, a few new and very loud, very vocal, brand new organisations that have been set up to uh, to oppose trans rights given an overwhelming preponderance in the media. And I think that gives the impression that more people think this way than they do. But in reality, I think it's, it's, it's a fringe movement in, in, in the feminist movement. And it always has been. I mean, there have always been anti-trans feminists, you know, since this argument started kicking off in the 70s. And they've always been on the outskirts of mainstream feminism and mainstream feminists, even, even really from the start. <laughs> these views were pretty marginalised because the vast majority of feminists could see the difficulties being faced by trans women, the need for solidarity, the need for inclusion and the need to take an intersectional approach to feminist campaigning that doesn't just look at sexism on its own, that recognises 
the whole range of different oppressions that people experience and the need to take action on all racism, ableism, um, classism and uh, homophobia, a, a whole range of other oppressions. Um, so although they've had their moment recently, <laughs> they're getting a lot of they're getting a lot of airtime in the press there. They've got very vocal Twitter accounts and plenty of bots on social media. Is an interesting question why it became why why it's so uh, why why it's so predominant at the moment. But you shouldn't mistake that for thinking that they're they're particularly numerous um, outside of very specific spaces. They're just very very vocal. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's like it's really important to state that um, because otherwise, like, I mean, that is like a lot of the like media framing is about this war of like you know feminists um or like feminist concerns about um trans rights and it's not actually reflective of like the majority of um feminist opinions and or just yeah just people who aren't so much like involved in the like the debate um sorry that was air quotes again but um i think it's a question of like power and that's that's why we've got we've got this like very specific situation in the UK where you know obviously transphobia and trans exclusionary like feminist positions are like you you find them everywhere and as Crash said they've they've always been around but I think there's a specific situation in the UK where they have this like very real like cloak of respectability that they're not afforded in um, the United States for example as it's seen as a sort of like legitimate centre-left position as they are here and I think that is something to do with the people who espouse them because it does tend to be like you know incredibly well like very well connected like powerful professional middle class or like upper class white women um who are like who are like espousing these views and I think if the if the people behind them weren't in those kind of positions, they wouldn't be given the the airtime and the sense of respectability um, that they're afforded by other people. And I think that sort of goes back to like there's a very long like tradition in like the history of like the the women at the top of sort of mainstream British feminism being you know basing a lot of their activity on um quite an exclusionary idea of what it is that they're trying to do and I think you know this is rooted in like a long history of like excluding like working class women women of color trans women lesbians um from their idea of what being well what being a woman is um for one thing and then what what the aims of the feminist movement are there to serve yeah, and in, so in the, the New York Times article, you know, Sophie Lewis essentially has a, a bit of a, a, a side swipe at British feminism as a, as a whole, it would appear, and says essentially that British feminism hasn't had to come to terms with issues like intersectionality, race, class, in the same way that it, ha- it happened in America and in other countries. And she actually, well, she roots a lot of it in imperialism, doesn't she? That was quite, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, the idea that British uh, British feminism had uh, incorporated a lot of imperial imperialist ideas about sort of others and, and so on. I thought that was quite interesting. Maybe that's another pod, maybe that's another podcast. Yeah, just, just to build on some of this, like, because I think it is important to kind of, I think more than any other social movement, I think feminism has had 
a lot of spotlight about the way that it can be used and abused either to advance equality, but also to disadvantage other groups experiencing oppressions. And so like there, there are numerous moments in history where this gets where, where this gets pointed out. So like the suffrage movement, um, especially in the States at the time where um, black people didn't have the right to vote, openly saying not only they they wouldn't campaign for black people's right to vote alongside the right of white women to vote, but also they might even oppose it on the grounds that um, women's white women's suffrage should come first. And, and so that's part of the legacy that then women of colour spend a lot of time critiquing and, and doing because whose interests are being served? It's not all women. It's just the most privileged women. You get it from, from working class feminists who criticise the um, early women's movement's attempts to basically try and ban women from employment on the grounds that it's too dangerous um, that, that it should be left for the men to do. Well, what happens to working class women who needed those jobs to survive? How are they included in this campaign to protect them from their own conditions of work just by locking them out and leaving to, leaving to the men? And uh, homophobia in women's movements, we often see echoes of homophobia in today's transphobia. But you often hear in the name of women say not letting lesbians into changing rooms because how will that affect vulnerable women who feel preyed upon? It's very similar to the language of transphobia that we hear today. But you could you there are moments in which there's open homophobia expressed in America. Betty Friedan, um, a very prominent feminist in the 50s, talking about lesbians needing to be excluded from the women's movement in, in this way. And I think there have perhaps been more, the, the history of that exclusion and gatekeeping in the feminist movement, I think has been better learned to a degree in America than it has in the UK, where I don't think there is very good acknowledgement of the history of the kind of damage uh, a sort of thoughtless, unintersectional, privileged feminism can do. And I think it's it's a recognition of that history that has bolstered support in many other parts of the world amongst feminist movements. Um, and perhaps a lack of a lack of recognition of that history in in these sort of feminist elites who are turning anti-trans or or have been outspoken anti-trans um, that, that, that's blame. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, like there is like a way of reading like the current um situation in the UK though in quite um like an almost hopeful way as well because I think what's happening now is is part of that reckoning where I think it's almost like an attempt to um pull up the drawbridge where you have seen like you know just a huge shift in social attitudes and activism among like younger people you know like you know trans inclusion is like it's not up for debate like it's like you know, central to like all the sort of like really exciting like campaigning and social movements we've seen like led by young people in in the UK and around the world like over recent years. So I think there's that's where the conflict is happening. And I think, you know, I think that's that's one reason why like the the sort of backlash has been so virulent because you're you're challenging, you know, some like very deeply held prejudices by by people who feel that you know that they are like the self-appointed leaders or um that they should be the ones who should determine you know what the movement is for or what being a woman is what they maybe they feel as if this is their final stand almost and their world is sort of collapsing and maybe that's why they're 
expressing themselves so loudly, perhaps. And and what's happened is that this has been triggered, of course, by the Gender Recognition Act. And so these, I mean, a lot of these, a lot, a, a lot of essentially campaigning organisations. I mean, there are like six or seven of them, all with different names. There's Fair Play for Women. There's um, um, Women's Place. There's uh, the LGB Alliance, protecting LGB people from the threats of of trans equality. They've all been set up. Uh, within 12 to 18 months after the government announced um, its plans to reform the Gender Recognition Act and essentially make the bureaucratic process by which trans people acquire a new birth certificate simpler. I think they saw that as an opportunity to challenge not really just this specific policy, but the idea that trans people should be accepted and welcomed in society more generally. And they really let on the opportunity because suddenly they found all these people in the media willing to give them um, a lot of space to talk about the threats trans equality poses to society and I say all this all very sarcastically. Well um, we'll talk about the GRA in a minute I wanted to go back I might just play devil's advocate here if that's all right just I mean I, I don't want to offend you crash but I wanted to talk about like the swimming pool thing and the bathroom issue and maybe just ask you know is there a conflict you know aren't women right to be concerned about male bodies in their spaces and things like that yeah and i but i think you've kind of made the point very well yourself like people are talking about these are new issues and um, that they're new threats that we need to resist ourselves from or that the government's reforms will let all these things happen well the government reforms won't let all these things happen because the government reforms have nothing to do with what toilet or what swimming pool people use. Um, Instead, that's something that trans people just have been doing for ages as part of your daily life. I mean, you don't have to show your birth certificate um, to to use a toilet at the train station (laughs) before they let you in. And I think, you know, a lot of anxiety gets produced about something that's just been a fact of, of society and a fact of life for a really long time now. And I think it kind of obscures, I think, what the real, what's in the real issues here, which is the threat that if you're a, a trans person using, um, a, you know, a, a toilet in public, that you might be very fearful, especially if you're someone who could be visibly read as trans, of being harassed or even assaulted when you do so. Um, I mean, speaking personally, it's not, it's not something I even think about. Um, anymore but I think when I was first coming out it was something that I had a lot of anxiety about I remember um one of the worst experiences I had was that I was uh, wanting to buy a dress from a from a high street shop and um was like in the queue for the changing room to try it on and these are like changing rooms with um you know like little cubicle and then when I got to the front of the queue the shop assistant was like oh you can't use this you're not allowed to use this. And I like saying this like in front of all um, other customers. And it's just like completely humiliating. And then they were like, they didn't, the shop didn't even, they didn't tell me to use the men's changing rooms because the shop didn't even have a men's changing rooms. They were like, those are disabled changing rooms. You have to use that if you want to try this dress on. They're just not letting me go to this cubicle, pull the curtain and try it on. And you just think, where is this, this isn't, this isn't about other people's anxieties about me you know mm-hmm. this is about or or anything I could do this is about wanting to exercise that power and, and control isn't it there's no there's no good reason to be keeping trans people out but I think 
it's this idea that other people have the the authority to say oh I don't like the look of you you don't get to use this space this is this is for me and people like me and not people like you well these spaces are for, for, for everybody <laughs> in our society and I think it's always a bad move to just allow people's like personal discomfort to justify humiliating and excluding other people from public spaces. Yeah definitely and I think like you know it also just ignores the fact that like you said people have been using these services or these spaces for decades without a problem it's nothing to do with the GRA and I think especially when we start talking about things like refuges or shelters for women who have like experienced like sexual violence or domestic abuse you know what what is it that people you know what do you what do people think that you achieve by saying that you're going to exclude certain people or that you're somehow going to put in some sort of protocol which like like what what does that achieve and where are people where are people supposed to go when they when they have those experiences of violence and abuse which obviously like we know like all the evidence show like trans people are are, like particularly vulnerable to those experiences as well and a lot of the like theoretical debate about this stuff just completely ignores the the very real experiences of people on the ground who like use those services and also provide them you know like professionals who work in a domestic abuse shelter like are very well versed in like risk assessments for everyone who comes to their like service they know exactly how to like create a safe space for everyone who needs it what they're focused on is making sure that people who come to them whoever they are are able to find safety and sort of when you bring it back to that and you talk to people who actually do provide these services like they're completely fine with it and have been doing it for decades anyway and I think you know that when when you focus on these sort of imagined threats that trans people somehow pose to women what you're doing is you're not talking about the actual shared threats that we all experience you know the problem isn't trans women trying to um needing to use like shelters or refuges the problem is that all those services have been like cut to the bone especially over like the last decade there aren't enough spaces for anyone and like what we should be doing is talking about that instead and campaigning on that so that everyone who needs these spaces and services can access them I think part of it is about coming from a place of inclusion, not a place from exclusion. So if your position is one of inclusion, then you think, okay, I'm a leisure centre and we have changing rooms for for the swimming pool. Like, how do we make this an inclusive space? And I think a lot of trans people, like the idea of like, personally, the idea of getting change in a communal changing room in front of a bunch of other strangers, it just opens me up to it like that's how I feel it opens me up to abuse and harassment and, and I would feel really really nervous about using a space like that well we know 50 there was a survey that showed about 50 percent of trans people don't use gyms or leisure centers because of the fear of harassment so if your starting point is a point of inclusion then you can think well would it be helpful to have changing rooms would it be helpful to have family changing spaces that have large cubicles like how do we make sure that everyone's needs are met in this situation whereas if you come it from a place of exclusion then people just think oh we've just gotta we've just got to um, keep trans trans people out 
And, and it's the same, you know, like with refugees. Well, if what people are worried about is abusive, abusive people or abusive men accessing a women's refuge. Well, if your starting point is inclusion, then you think, well, we need to include trans women because turning away someone who needs our service and could benefit from our service in their hour of need is, is one of the worst things we could do. So what do we need to do to make sure we keep people safe? Well, we make sure that we have proper risk assessments so that we know stuff um, about the history of abuse that people have experienced. And, and those are also measures that would be largely used by services and are being largely used by services anyway, because sometimes you might have women with a history of abuse, cisgender women with a history of abuse, trying to access a service as well. And so it, these are all things that these professionals consider but if you start from that place of inclusion you get to a different outcome if you start from the place of exclusion then and your solution is well therefore we have to exclude trans people or we have to exclude trans women I think what people are blind to is well what impact does that have on the excluded if you're effectively banned from using any toilet when you go oh, shopping I mean and for some people that would make it impossible to go into town to do a shop back in the day when we used to be able to go into town to do a shop. But you know what I mean? If you're the type of, you know, person who can't be out of the house for a couple of hours without, you know, needing to use a toilet, then you're basically banned from public life if you can't use public toilets without the fear of someone saying, you don't belong here, you shouldn't be in here, you're making other people uncomfortable. And it's even worse when you think about those specialist services that are really needed, like um, abuse services, because we know that trans people are at really high risk of abuse. We know that trans people often fear reaching out to services because they're worried about what kind of reaction they'll get. And the idea of building up the courage to approach a service, which might be one of your very few opportunities if you're living with a controlling person to reach out, to be told, oh, I'm sorry, we don't look after people like you. We don't have a space for people like you. I mean, that's one of the worst possibilities. For, for the people who are arguing for exclusion, well, they just they just they just frankly don't care, really. Yeah. What to the people who are excluded, so it just doesn't weigh into their scales. But the moment you think about those experiences, you weigh them into the mixture, and you start from this place of inclusion. I just think you it gets you to a much more sensible place, and you realise there aren't there aren't really any conflicts here that we can't solve. Much of it, well, again, this might this might be wrong, but. The impression I get certainly is is a lot of that is down to the you know the class character of many of the people who are making these arguments is that you know they would never even they wouldn't have come into these situations they wouldn't have to use these services or even conceive of of, of them possibly so it's it's almost out of sight out of mind potentially I mean it, it seems to me you know like a lot of a lot of forms of bigotry historically you can justify all sorts of things by pointing to or, or creating like predatory behavior and if you go through history um a lot of racism bigotry against certain you know uh, whether it be black people gays and so on has been justified by pointing to a bogeyman of uh, that poses a threat you know to other other groups and often well always it's portraying people who are vulnerable and marginalized as predators and, uh, and it might be a, a good point to just read out some statistics about the you know the the problems faced by trans people in the UK at the moment. I'm looking at the Stonewall, the report. I think it's from this year. So L, trans report uh, by Stonewall and some of the key findings. You know, two in five trans people, so in 41 percent, 
three in 10 non-binary people have experienced a hate crime or incident because of their gender identity in the last 12 months. More than a quarter of trans people in a relationship have faced domestic abuse from a partner. One in four trans people have experienced homelessness at some point in their lives. One in eight trans employees have been physically attacked by colleagues or customers in the last year. More than a third of trans university students uh, in higher education have experienced negative comments or behaviour from staff in the last year. Two in five trans people adjust the way they dress because they fear discrimination or harassment. The number increases significantly to half of non-binary people. Two in five trans people said the healthcare st staff lacked understanding of specific trans health needs when accessing general healthcare services in the last year. Three in five trans people, 62%, who've undergone or are currently undergoing medical intervention for their transition are unsatisfied with the time it took to get an appointment. And more than one in 10 trans people have gone abroad for medical treatment to alter their physical appearances, uh, physical appearance, sorry, including buying hormones with the internet from other countries, many citing the barriers they currently face in accessing medical treatment in the UK. This will bring us hopefully onto the GRA. Those are fairly mind-blowing um, and incredibly bleak statistics that should, in my view, you know, demonstrate quite clearly how, how discriminated against trans people are and how vulnerable they are. I wanted to just briefly share, you know, I work in homeless and frontline homelessness services. And I have to confess, I, I kind of thought the debate was kind of a bit abstract until I had to work with some trans women who were facing uh, violence and they were stuck in this horrible purgatory situation in most of the shelters in, in Cardiff are male only but obviously they couldn't access those shelters and they couldn't access many of the other spaces because they were subject to violence and abuse and it was just not safe for them to go there um, and then you realize that well you know what are we going to just say oh you can't <laughs> You can't come in and it just struck me as just this unbelievably dystopian concept as you mentioned crash of just turning people away in our hour of need you know look you know luckily and luckily as Mabley said you know the people who are involved in women's refuges have extremely strict risk assessments and you know they, they managed to be placed but it was just and what i think is interesting as well is that i mean speaking personally my experiences on the left I have been shocked by some of the attitudes from, you know, people I consider, I do consider like comrades and people I consider to have you know, fairly good politics. And one of the issues that are traditionally thrown at, well, not just trans people, but, you know, historically, you know, lesbians, gays, historically, um, as well as ethnic minorities, especially in the UK, um, was that, you know, anyone talking about identity issues or non-class issues is in this some kind of, you know, middle class deviation but then you realize you know when you're actually working with frontline homelessness services that you know it's a class you know, it's, it's also a massive class issue you know people these are some of the most vulnerable and marginalized people in the world you know prison leavers and 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 yet you're being told by often middle class people middle class leftists that this is like somehow uh, to talk about this stuff is a bourgeois uh, or, or middle class deviation uh, and then you realize actually no these are some of them this is also a, a class issue <laughs> no I think that's really important though like these are like you know they're not there's this weird idea that when you talk about identity you're not also talking about very real like material issues exactly. you know and like for me like I want you know I think like left politics should be grounded in people's actual lived experience and like lived material realities and you know and the same goes for you know feminism and I think that carries across when you when you see this kind of this trans exclusionary feminism or you know also that kind of that very like 
reductionist like leftism is that it those are the people that are talking about these things in a very theoretical abstract way as identity issues whereas like to me the people who like crash said come at things from a point of inclusion are actually talking about people's real experiences they're actually talking about like working class people's experiences and you know rather than like scaremongering about trans women being placed in women's prisons why are you like creating these like um bogeyman like characters rather than talking about like the very real like awful experiences that all women have going to prison and how we you know like separate mothers from their children for like shoplifting you know put them in and put them in prison for like two weeks and like disrupt their entire lives and their families you know that doesn't get talked about the effect of austerity on like women's services domestic abuse shelters doesn't get talked about we'd rather talk about like this perceived threat that trans women somehow somehow pose to them you know and I think like when you look at the world in the state that it is at the moment the fact that you could think that this is the primary issue that feminists or leftists should be focusing on is to me like it's completely bizarre and it's completely divorced from reality and I I do think like you said Dan that kind of reflects the position of like privilege or power that some people are coming from but I also think there's um it's almost like a fantasy politics because it's it's easier in a way to blame all your problems on this this minority group that you've you've decided pose like the biggest threat to to you rather than actually tackling the like the multi-layered and really complex like slow catastrophe that a lot of of people are actually facing in society and I think it, it says a lot about which position people are coming from and what priorities they have in their politics. So the Gender Recognition Act I'm probably gonna like stare at you both now to, to correct me as I'm going stumbling through this um first came into play in 2004 and it was a, there was a proposed um reform or update in 2017 do you do you want to explain what the the gender recognition act was originally and what the proposed reforms were yeah sure I mean the thing about the gender recognition act is that it's, it's hard to make it very exciting because it, it is <laughs> It is quite a bureaucratic thing, but essentially we got it in 2004. At the time it was world leading. Um, and the reason why we got it is because um, a trans woman sued the United Kingdom in the European Court of Human Rights. Because before we had the Gender Recognition Act 2004, there was no way for a trans person to get legal recognition of their gender. So they would always be considered legally as the sex they were assigned at birth. And that created so many difficulties for trans people. One of the things that they emphasized at the time was that it just meant that you you basically couldn't get married as a trans person, um, because this was before there was even the option of people having same-sex marriage or civil partnership. But also it just, they pointed out that it means that whenever you have to evidence your identity, especially with a birth certificate, perhaps more common back then, although actually more common these days now we've got the hostile environment and people often have to document their right to work here. You know, she's talked about times where she'd had to reveal that she was trans, the claimant in this case, when she went to the police and whenever she started a new job and all that exposes, all the risk that exposes to trans people constantly having to tell 
everyone that you are trans and because you're required to by law because your birth certificate is not reflecting who you actually are or you are and, and nor is there the documentation so the gender recognition act comes in in 2004 and it provides the procedure for trans people to apply for a new birth certificate uh, that reflects their <coughs> new name and their gender and it also confirms that then once you go through that procedure the law completely regards you as being what they call your acquired gender or, or, or sort of your your true gender identity which still matters for some things it still matters for like weddings if you want to make sure that you refer to as a wife or a husband on your wedding day and not you know if I got married today I'd have to be referred to as the husband um in the ceremony which is obviously a, a pretty pretty unpleasant yeah. um, and, uh, matters for pensions especially if you're you know in the generation that has a different pension age it doesn't matter for so many other things in society and and one of the things that we know about the gender recognition act is that very few trans people actually apply for a certificate so since 2004 about 5,000 have been issued to, to trans applicants the number of trans people living in the uk we're probably talking at least a hundred thousand probably more i mean it's a tiny percentage of people who've gone through the procedure that's part because you know some of these are quite big picture things that it gives you access to whereas um these days it's very easy to change your gender um it's relatively easy to change your gender id on your driving license or your passport or at work or on your medical records or at your bank or wherever you need it changed for day-to-day -day things that's quite straightforward it's just you'll always have this birth certificate that recognizes you in a different gender and so what these reforms were about was that the way that under the current act um, the 2004 act that you apply for a new gender recognition certificate is really really old-fashioned um, it's pretty degrading you have to it's a very medicalized process so you have to submit medical evidence you have to submit a psychiatric report from a gender expert who has diagnosed you with the condition of a gender dysphoria and then you and you also have to show provide evidence that you've been living in your acquired gender for at least two years so it's a it's a real hard work there's lots of barriers there for you know trans people who have say informal employment histories which makes it harder for them to provide all this evidence you know they're not going to have pay slips that show that, that reflect their gender identity it's expensive and and also it's just stuck in this mindset of treating being trans as a mental illness because like imagine having to get a, a, a psychiatrist to agree that you genuinely are trans according to this psychiatrist who has assessed you and so Theresa May when she announced that they were planning on reforming the system said look being trans isn't a mental illness and it shouldn't be treated as one um, and I think, you know, fair play to her, it's a very good point. Um, and so, I mean, there are other issues with the Act. You only have a binary choice of genders in the Act, so you can transition uh, to female, to male, but there's no option for non-binary people. Lots of other countries now have forms of legal recognition and like a third option, like an X. So there is some way if you're non-binary of having legal recognition, we don't have that. People hoped we would get that um, if they reformed the Act. Similarly, there's no provision for under 18s, which means that um, those benefits and especially, you know, benefits about protecting privacy around gender history that you get if you've been through this process 
you can't get if you're an under 18. So yeah, in, in 2017, the Conservative government announced that it would um, plan to reform the Gender Recognition Act. And I think for lots of people that came, you know, after we'd made some achievements on LGB rights, you know, we have um, same-sex marriage, having come through previously, but there are still lots of areas in which the law doesn't treat trans people equally. So people thought, well, it's time to change the focus, think about legal rights for trans people. Widespread support across the political consensus, because I think people could see how old fashioned the, 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 the current system was. And then this triggering, this huge backlash. And in the face of this backlash, I mean, the government did a consultation on these proposals in 2018, so two years ago now. And it still has failed to formally respond to them. Still waiting on Liz Truss, the new Minister for Equalities, to announce it. She said it was going to happen before the summer. She hasn't said anything. But what's concerning is now there have been rumours from the Conservative government that not only are they not going to proceed with these reforms in a meaningful way, having caused all this furore in the press, having subjected trans people to this horrific backlash, and it has been horrific, to um, deal with all this commentary on social media and in the press, but also that there were suggestions that they might even use this as an opportunity to roll back some trans rights. And all of this is kind of rumours and speculation at the moment. It seems like the government was maybe going to head that direction. And I think lots of people thought, well, they're having a bad time with coronavirus and this is a good distraction tactic, sort of play into the culture war to, to distract from the government's failings. There was a very well-organised, I think, response to these leaks from a lot of um, trans organisations in which lots and lots of people contact, wrote to the government, wrote to their MPs. And I think the government might have underestimated the strength of support for trans people in society at large and sort of been distracted by the press where this is a debate and these anti-trans campaigning organisations trying to make this in a debate. But when you start going after the rights of trans people and, 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 and the people who defend us, you know, our families, our colleagues, our friends um, who see the reality of this. I think the government perhaps realised this is a constituency that might be too big to cross, but we still just don't know because it's completely in limbo. Maybe we'll hear in September, but, you know, they, they've been saying you'll hear next month for the last 12 months or so. I'm not very hopeful. It's worth noting, I think, that in America, Trump has formally started to roll back the, the the law has he not I believe he he's repealed was it the the right of trans people to access medical in America it's been um it's uh it's just a kind of different context because trans people are protected from discrimination in this country by the Equality Act and that's been there since 2010 trans people have actually been protected from discrimination a bit longer under law because there were provisions beforehand that got that got dealt with in the Equality Act. So I think that's always the thing to bear in mind is that like whatever people are trying to do with the Gender Recognition Act, it's still illegal to discriminate against trans people. That is a right that we have under law. In America, that right's been much less certain. And so what what Trump's been trying to do is repeal guidance that says that federal agencies which aren't allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex for a while that was taken to include gender identity. And then he tried to rewrite the guidance that says it doesn't include gender identity. In fact, uh, agencies should discriminate against trans people, and um, which there was a lot of concern about. There's sort of disagreement going on between the courts and the White House at the moment, because there's also been a really significant Supreme Court decision in America um, called Bostock, in which it was held that those provisions um, definitely do extend to 
protection from discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and um, gender identity. So it'll be interesting to see the extent to which the Trump administration follows that ruling, seeks to challenge that ruling, seeks to ignore that ruling. I mean, you know, Trump's no fan of the rule of law. And um, so it's it's still a bit uncertain, it's still a bit watch this space, but I think a lot of people have been reassured by the Supreme Court being surprisingly firm on the extent to which trans people are protected from discrimination. So in the UK, you know, when the GRA, uh, the, the, the consultation went out, what was it? What were the recommendations from groups like Stonewall, from trans rights groups? What, what were the proposals and what did people want? The, the consultation was very open, so it just was saying, you know, we're thinking of reforming this, what do you think? But I think the, the key things that people want is um, a demedicalised approach, so no longer requiring medical evidence, psychiatric diagnosis, any of that. It's just yeah. not, you know, like, it's just not a good way to think about being trans. And it might have flown in 2004, but it, it, it can't fly today. Just make um, it a little less dystopian sort of thing. Yeah, it's just treating it like a mental condition that a doctor can diagnose. And I just think that that's completely the wrong way to think about gender identity. How, like, how is it like there's something just, you know, yourself and it should be down to you, not whether you can convince a doctor that you really are trans. So I think that's a big one. Um, recognition for non-binary people. Some some way, some sort of procedure for under 18s to get recognition. Um, and that might be through like a model of, of parental consent. Um, as long as there are provisions for young people who can't get parental consent. And and I think the fundamental thing is to have, and what you see in other countries that have um, reformed models of gender uh, gender recognition, is what's best practice is to have a, a process based on self-determination. So there's no, there's no panel who has to say yes, there's no doctor, like what matters is you. <laughs> and this shouldn't, this, this decision shouldn't be up to anyone else else other than you so kind of a simple a simple way of not having to prove that you're trans or just recognizing that you are trans and just applying yeah. to get a new birth certificate so yeah well going back to the fundamental point you you mentioned at the start of the episode you know about just trying to get the law to reflect the basic premise that people should be free to, to identify how they want and, and live their life how they want free from discrimination and harm so obviously reasonable proposals i mean even though as you said it has been well supported it has obviously been met with organized opposition from trans exclusion radical feminists as we alluded to earlier the political context in the uk around the gra now as you said crash seems to be a bit unclear labor seemed to have gone quiet on supporting and proposed amendments to the gra as a a not good sign there was an article in tribune which said that there's been, there was a leak from boris johnson's office which suggested that you know following the lead I mean, maybe this was something to do with like this you know the steve bannon connection but there was a suggestion that maybe dominic cummings had proposed focusing on as you said focusing on the gra and and, and making trans people a scapegoat like basically openly saying like this is a culture war thing that we can introduce into the british mainstream so yeah how has the response been from like the the left and to the gra i think it's been um i mean it's been it's been mixed you know in the labor party and on the labor left i think you have to you have to separate the the policy positions you know the, like the parties committed yeah, yeah, yeah. Forming the gender recognition act i think and i don't think there's a real appetite 
to to change any of that you know the commitment to as a party of government improve things for for trans people i'm 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 quite confident in in a way that i'm perhaps a bit less confident in the conservatives current commitment to do that but i think people have noticed a change of tone from Keir Starmer which is in general you know this this kind of very conciliatory very considered trying to avoid taking sides sometimes on some some issues I think you know where where it came to a head recently was this controversy about Rosie Duffield who was a a Labour MP who and indeed the chair of the Labour Women's Forum, the Women's Network. And um, so, you know, someone someone with, with some significance to these issues tweeting quite insensitively something along the lines of uh, what is it transphobic to say that only women can get cervical cancer, which I think was a pretty unpleasant thing to, to, to tweet because people know for a while that you can be you can be trans, you can be a trans man and non-binary and have a cervix, be at risk of cervical cancer. You know, there are also loads of issues with um, stuff like access to screening for, for, for trans people, which can pose really serious health things. Because if you get health systems that don't recognise that trans men need cervical screening or anyone with a cervix who's trans needs um, screening, you might not get invited. Or you might have anxieties about going to get screening because you're worried about being discriminated against or, or just people being very awkward if you go and try and get screening and that's a real issue because all that stacks up and if people aren't accessing the preventative medicine that people need to prevent them from getting cancer so it upset a lot of people she got a lot of criticism on social media because I think people thought what she said was just really very thoughtless and quite hurtful and and just seemingly a bit intentionally so because she prefaced it with this whole is it's transphobic to say this now or surely it's not transphobic to say this so it wasn't you know something that was accidental she was deliberately yeah. into this territory and I think what was disappointing to see how lots of people reacted to it was it all became about the backlash and is the backlash civil enough is the backlash polite enough surely we shouldn't be criticizing her so harshly for just one little tweet and I think a lot of people had sympathy for her because of that and you know you can think what you want about the ethics and the norms of online discourse and I wouldn't say it's being on Twitter is necessarily where you see the healthiest examples of of social interaction but I think people hopped over perhaps what was more important which was her just seeming to belittle trans men's identities in particular and also do so on on a, an issue that's there's, there's just an important practical health issue and she took a long time to apologize she had a lot of people perhaps unwisely I think rushing to her defense in the onslaught of negative comments without appreciating the, the extent to which she, she brought a lot of this on herself and then eventually they had an apology from her on her Facebook which I think a lot of people didn't think really recognise the wrong she did. And it was all about a lot of it. It really focused on how negative experience this had been for her. And again, focusing on the criticism rather than what was wrong with what she said, how she hurt people, why that shouldn't be the, the way that the Labour Party talks about these issues. And, and the leadership seemed to really want to stay out of the whole conversation. Whereas I think a lot of people were saying, well, 
leadership has to be standing up for you know the minorities the minoritized communities that a, a party of equality is is committed to fighting for so i think that was a bit disappointing in that it revealed some stuff about the style of of leadership and you know moving for example dawn butler who who's been widely considered to be a really really strong ally to the trans community um, and not replacing her with a similarly vocal voice on on trans issues but what can I say? I hope they'll find find their feet. I hope they'll learn their lessons. I hope they'll develop confidence um, in leadership. And I think recognize that the way that you avoid stuff like this, the way that you avoid these social media meltdowns is by being really clear to people about what is and what isn't acceptable, how you expect people to behave online, and by holding them to account when they sit below those standards, because they're soft on it. And we, you've seen this happen in the SNP, for example, where there is a lot of very high profile transphobia and transphobic campaigning exhibited by very prominent members of the Scottish National Party. And I think when you go soft on these these, these issues, when you don't enforce a clear line that, that this is not what the party stands for and this is not how elected members should be speaking about these issues, then people take advantage of it and people want to, you know, get the spotlight, make a name for themselves, fight whatever factional battles they want to fight. And if you let them, they, it spirals out of control. And so I think purely from a practical standpoint, like this is something that it's worth having a, a bit of a stricter approach about. Yeah, definitely. And I think like we've seen, you know, we've seen like a real like disappointing lack of leadership from like several parties on this issue, like Crash says, like, you know, there are examples all over the place. And there's that, I think, that sort of trepidation or nervousness around like taking a strong line in favour of like, of very basic, like human rights for trans people and allowing these things to fester and like, especially within like the realm of social media. You know, like we've had a prominent member of the Senate here who has shared like horrendously transphobic content online and, you know, seemingly without consequence. And I think it's something that like, you know, we really should be demanding more of like all political leaders to take like a much firmer stance on this stuff. Because, again, as Crash said, like this isn't it's not a theoretical debate like it's it is like it is people's real lives yeah it's an overarching point about you know online discourse which you know obviously it's about powerful people complaining that you know people without power are, are being mean to them and what i thought was interesting reading up on this episode and about you know people calling it like highly charged on the one hand you know you have and, and people moaning about being called turfs for example but on the other hand there are people who are basically saying, you know, denying trans people's right to exist, essentially, um, and saying, or denying your everyday experience, which is obviously a, a lot worse. And as you just said, Mabley, I mean, like, I guess transphobia, just like all forms of bigotry, does have real world experiences and uh, consequences for real people. And when people, you know, offer, like, as you say, crash at mealy mouth apologies, like the fields, you know, this has been terrible for me. You have to remember that, you know, there's it is a material issue. Um, I mean, both of you brought to my attention before the before the podcast started. You know, this horrific incident just happened in the Philippines, where a U.S. Marine killed a, killed a trans woman that he met in a bar. And Duarte, the dictator in the Philippines, has just essentially pardoned him, uh, which is 
an unbelievable thing to read about, like unbelievably horrific and bleak. And it is important to remember these. I'm not saying there's a direct correlation between a Labour MP or people being transphobic and, and, and trans people being murdered, but you know, obviously, actions don't exist. They, they have a specific context, and there's a narrative that leads to these things being normalised and uh, and hatred becoming. Um, acceptable yeah well no but i just think yeah like when when you think about how these things play out like i think a lot of people who are new to this conversation are like ah, oh, why are people so angry like why yeah. is there so much why is there so much hostility why is there so much shouting why are there so many all caps like i think that's that's a perfectly natural reaction to have when you walk onto a scene of conflict and you're not familiar with the context but what i just implore people to do is that the reason why trans people often act out of worry or fear or anger is because they know what's at stake mm-hmm. um, if this language becomes normalised, you know, if it becomes common for even just, you know, the parliamentary Labour Party to talk about trans people in belittling ways, in, in, in mocking ways and in ways that um, they're, they're also, um, it, it, I mean, basically normalise discrimination. Um, in healthcare or spread misinformation about healthcare needs, they know what can happen if stuff like that takes off, if it isn't pushed back against, if we live in a society where this becomes an acceptable way to talk about it, or or more acceptable than it already is. Um, and what's happening in the Philippines is just, it's just a really important example of the, what can happen when people with very powerful platforms start targeting trans people and singling them out or for, for, for criticism or to be mocked because although it's horrible on just the specific facts of the case you know the fact that this woman could be murdered by a man in a like in in a hotel room she was drowned in a hotel room he's convicted of the murder and then the president of the country says that's fine I mean it's there's so much injustice just on that case but what that president is doing there is just wanting to save this one man from prison for a few extra years. He wants to communicate to the rest of the country that he thinks that violence against LGBT people is acceptable and will be tolerated by his regime. You know, it's the wink or the dog whistle to the rest of society at large that this is violence is acceptable, even murder is acceptable against the LGBT. And I think that's what's that's what's really scared people in the Philippines. And it's not just in the Philippines. This is what I'd say to people on the left internationally. This is a growing populist far-right tendency that is taking a very specific form in the UK. But if you look at the Philippines, um, where you've got the rise of the far-right in Duterte, if you look at Brazil and the targeting of um, LGBT people and other minorities um, by that government, um, if you've seen how Trump has weaponized LGBT issues and trans issues. Um, if you look at the protests in Poland and the, at the, where LGBT free zones have cropped up at, this, at, the, at the hands of a far right president who's just been re-elected, where LGBT protesters have been um, um, arrested, where um, it's common for politicians to rail, uh, politicians and, and church leaders to rail against the LGBT community, calling us paedophiles, calling us um, uh, a threat to women and children, um, and 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 um, referring um, to gender ideology as being like a source of great illness. 
it's the same forces at work here. You know, this is an international movement with a lot of shared language and a lot of shared tactics. And just because some of the people who express these viewpoints are in left wing social circles doesn't doesn't undermine the point that this is a, a reactionary you know, people are, are spreading the same messages. I mean, one of the things um, that I think has opened a lot of people's eyes to this recently is there's currently a legal challenge um, about access to healthcare for trans young people because trans young people can currently access um, through the Gender Identity Development Service on the NHS um, treatment and support. And for younger ages, um, that might just be, you know, counselling and support for parents. A uh, young person's going to um, transition socially. And then when, people, when puberty starts, they might be prescribed puberty blockers. So it just halts the process um, until they're older and they can make a more informed decision about their transition. And then only when people are over 16, people can have irreversible treatment in the form of sex hormones and hormone therapy. Now, anti-trans campaigners have launched a legal challenge against that service, saying that what it's doing is against the law and should be stopped, which they've had a huge amount of money from fairly opaque sources to do. But I think a lot of people are looking at this international far right movement and some high profile billionaires, perhaps as a potential source of the funding. But what's opened people's eyes to this is that the solicitor who's running this case is a right wing Christian. Um, and he's pre previously run a number of cases trying to clamp down on abortion rights. And the argument that he uses <laughs> against this service is very similar to the arguments that would be used to restrict access to contraception and abortion for young people and in particular young, young women. Um, because what he's saying is that, oh, well, children can't consent to permanent decisions and what if they regret it and surely you'd need parental consent for this or surely you'd need to be over the age of 18 for any of this and those are all arguments that are attempted to be used to say well this is why we shouldn't let any girl under the age of 18 have an abortion or this is why um, any um, young person seeking an abortion should be required to notify their parents um, which is bang in line with the agenda of conservatives and, and far right and extreme evangelicals. Um, it's clearly an anti-feminist move. And this guy who has all these experience bringing anti-abortion cases is the person who's leading <laughs> this legal challenge against trans people. Um, and I, I just think that there might be a handful of people in feminist movements or on the left who support this agenda, but in a way, if you're looking for a proper theoretical analysis, they're kind of just the window dressing to all of this. Yeah. And I think they should be a lot more aware of who they're getting into bed with than, than people are at the moment. And some of them, some of them are, some of, some of the most prominent anti-trans feminists have been recently distancing themselves because they don't like where things are going. So um, there's a woman, for example, called Kathy Brennan, who's an American, um, to like trans exclusive radical feminist who for a long time a few years ago um, was one of the most high profile anti-trans anti feminists and she's been ruthlessly critical of the extent to which gender critical movements have allied themselves with the religious rights and in America they've allied themselves with the religious right at a time where the religious right is not just trying to stop protections for trans people being discriminated against, but also for gay and bisexual people being discriminated against. And I think that for her was kind of a last straw. She was like, what, what, what is feminist about joining up with the conservatives to 
take away LGBT people's discrimination protections. <laughs> so um, I think some people recognise it, but um, for for most, it's it's kind of too. They 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 haven't really seen the bigger picture of of the role they're playing. Yeah, it's extremely naive um, of many people, you know, especially people on the left getting sucked into these, uh, and as you said, allying with some of these extremely uh, awful people. I wanted to briefly talk, I shouldn't laugh um, because it's not funny, but I've become obsessed with um, the trajectory of Graham Lynham, the alleged writer of Father Ted, used to absolutely, well, I do still love it, it's a fantastic um, show. Now, Lynham, or, or Glynner as he's known, um, online has gone on a journey to say the least sort of you know gone from a much loved sitcom writer to well I mean I don't know how to describe it you know kind of like a, a male trans exclusionary radical feminist ally oh, but like you know to the point where he's you know frothing at the mouth uh, seemingly you know routinely makes transphobic statements and and from his perspective it's it's all you know i'm doing it to protect women and you know he he's like an ally of women and so on um but marbley and i have spoken about how this is almost like a, he's almost been radicalized quite rapidly but also online do you want to talk about that because i mean because i think that there is something interesting there because and it do, does dovetail with what you were saying crash about about how this is a transnational thing and that there are much larger, more sinister forces at play. And yeah, as you said, some people are window dressing, but I think that the the, the way that people are radicalised across the world uh, into the alt-right, for example, there seems to be some parallels with how like Glynna and other people are being sucked into the, the transphobic pipeline. And I was wondering if you could talk about that for a little bit. I think there's definitely like these very scary parallels between how like transphobes organise online, you know, in very much the same playbook as how the far right and the alt-right do as well and um and it is like it is a process of radicalization and you can watch it you can watch it happen to people where you know you almost go down like a rabbit hole where you know you get sucked into this stuff and I think you know you've seen that happen with um JK Rowling like almost in real time how she's gone you know she's sort of very much like gone on a journey to um, to where she is now but I, I think it's important though as well to like state how you know that is very much like an online process and it it does happen to a lot of people and there are a lot of people who are like I guess particularly open to it but it can happen in reverse as well and there was a really nice piece in the independent a few weeks ago by a woman talking about how you know she'd started going down that kind of rabbit hole and had started reading all this transphobic um, stuff online and sort of getting sucked into these ideas and then her nephew came out as trans and she then went on you know another journey of changing from having that person in her life that she loved and wanted to see flourish and wanted to be safe you know she sort of from that position of empathy then and having like that actual real world connection with someone is now you know a really proud trans ally can see like all the flaws in in the debates and um and the arguments that transphobes put forward so i think you know it's always important to like emphasize the extent to which you know i think crash was saying earlier like there's this, this huge constituency of people out there who you know we have trans people in our lives who we love and that we care about 
and that that process works the other way as well and a lot of this the online radicalization stuff is yeah it comes because of dehumanization and and treating these these debates as if they're not about real people they're about this abstract threat or theoretical idea of gender I think seeing it as radicalization is really important and I think it's something that doesn't get enough attention is like what is going on to transform people who had just never really thought very carefully about trans issues like 18 months ago into people who who, who think that this is maybe the greatest threat facing society at the moment, which I think some people genuinely do. And to think that, you know, with all the things that are going on at the moment that, that trans people just going about their daily lives could be so important. I mean, it shows how how people lose their perspective that that is what radicalization is about, isn't it? And you have a lot of, you know, online forums. Um, you people talk about Mumsnet, but there are there are a lot of other <laughs> forums that are perhaps more hidden. Um, in which people are in these really really closed communities, and they often kind of egg each other on. There's a lot of that kind of talking about all the other people in their life who have cut them out or don't accept them anymore um, and, and trying to kind of create kind of suspicion to anyone who's outside that bubble. Lots of lots of stuff on the internet about trans people is, is genuinely essentially full-on propaganda and, and if you weren't informed about these issues, if you were, if this was your first engagement with this topic and you read this stuff, then you would come out being incredibly suspicious and fearful and hateful of trans people like because it's very very powerful propaganda tools it's playing on people's emotions people's suspicions people's fears people's personal experience of violence and abuse and and quite craftedly trying to target that at this group of people who you might not have a lot of contact with I mean it's just classic propaganda Mm. and it, it can be very effective so I think it is a really important way to bear in mind what's going on. And I think it also kind of points you the way maybe to how to how to stop people from falling or how to bring people back when they fall in this cult. It's easy to thinking about this as anti-radicalization. So making sure, for example, like and I've had friends to, to whom this has happened, but like making sure, you know, if someone posts something you disagree with um, on Facebook that's transphobic, for example like thinking about what might be effective ways to counter that yeah. world. Is it, you know, having a really, really long, vindictive point by point argument all down their timeline? Well, is that just going to confirm what this person's reading, which is people just want to shut down all discussion. They'll call anything transphobic, even if you're just answering, asking a question. All these tricks that are used to build distrust with the outside world to, that, that, that cements you into this radicalizing network so it might be more useful to you know send someone a yeah I'm just being like oh this is an issue I've thought a lot about too but I, I didn't really agree with the article you wrote and um, maybe we should talk about it sometime and you know just trying to keep that line of communication open that isn't judgmental that is encouraging you know people to read things from other perspectives if they've not gone um too far down like trying to share stuff in particular written about written by trans people that's about personal experience and you know checking that all the other things that are going on in someone's life are okay because I think sometimes you know the people who are most vulnerable to being radicalized in whatever direction 
often comes from you know a place where um, you know people are looking for a community or or using this to project other stresses or fears or anxieties they have in their lives um, so I think it is a really really useful frame and I think you know I think one of the sad things about the media discussion in this country is that it's really taken this phenomenon of this this sort of anti-trans campaign that has sprung up and it has, has not gained loads of support but the support it has gained is very very dedicated <laughs> is what I'd say and it's just kind of taken it as face value <laughs> like and, and it's just kind of accepted oh yeah of course you know it's perfectly legitimate for people to feel this way and it's a really natural thing to spring up rather than really think it's about this fun. as a phenomenon and, and look behind what is going on here and think of it and, and, and explore, you know, how are people being radicalised or explore what international connections are being built or explore what are the links between all these movements that have just cropped up out of nowhere or explore, you know, the, I think the latest count is over £600,000 spent on legal challenges to various different bits of legislation or guidance or um, policy from different bits of the state and where is all that money coming from like who who is who is donating all of this and I think it's, it's a bit an indictment on the sort of the lack of diversity in our media that that's essentially closed ranks and said oh this is a legitimate debate that needs to be heard out and not not really interrogated any of those questions. Yeah super interesting on the radicalization stuff uh, Ollie from the from our podcast was because you know we're, we're hopefully going to start making explainers you know theoretical explainer videos just like what is socialism and stuff and he made the mistake of you know he went on youtube and typed in like what is socialism was like the first first videos that come up but these alt-right funded you know crazy videos by you know far-right american think tanks like this is why socialism is evil and there is like a wormhole that people obviously go down and i you know it is scary I've deleted Facebook, but I remember when I I used to go on Facebook, it was pe- actually painful to see, you know, your school friends into, you know, the alt right or you know, all the, all the old outrage uh, ways of generating things, you know, Britain first and, and all that stuff. And it's a tried and tested playbook that is uh, is extremely important to keep an eye on, as you said, Crash. All right, so we're moving finally on to the Welsh context. What is the state status of, you know? I know that Scotland wanted to do something separate for the, for the GRA. They've obviously got a separate legal system. What what has been happening with regards to trans in Wales? You know, there are some, well, let's just say there are alt-right cranks currently in the Senate. There are people who are overtly transphobic in the Senate. You know, what what's happening at the moment, would you say, in Wales? I think there's definitely a specific problem in Welsh public life around transphobia I mean like you know as we've been saying like it's definitely it's present everywhere and it has like it it definitely has a specific character in the UK but I do think there are like there's a specific issue in it with it in Wales where it's definitely been allowed to fester and hasn't hasn't been challenged um as it should have been by a lot of like our political leaders um and like prominent public figures who have sort of you know either allowed things to happen or or not been like clear on their support or indulged some of these narratives and I think you know you can definitely see it on like the Welsh left um within like the Welsh independence movement you know you do have you've had like very prominent people um say extremely transphobic things 
and it and it hasn't been like challenged in the way that it should have done whether that's because of you know people's lack of understanding which I think is what it is a lot of the time but also this sense that you know that there is somehow a legitimate debate to be had there you know even like the stuff that we've seen around this idea of like niche issues shouldn't be part of like any debate about Wales's future as if women people of colour trans people like aren't going to be there in like any future Welsh society and so have no no stake or no say in how they should be treated within it but yeah I think like it to me it's very like it's very reflective of some of those like deeper problems in Welsh public life where you know a lack of political education a lack of like real like efforts to forge solidarity between communities and different groups rather than pit them against each other and you know the weaknesses of like our media the weaknesses of scrutiny and you know and the weaknesses of our political parties where they they just don't have like the the structures or you know the courage of their convictions to um to stand on the right side of these things so I think it is like you know the way that it like manifests specifically in Wales has like is reflective of of those deeper problems here in the same way as it is on a UK level. I definitely agree with that and I think you know there's no there's no political party in Wales that can really wash its hands of the issue of of transphobia people being transphobic and being really not held to account in um in any way and and I think you're spot on madly talking about the issue of the kind of the absence of, of, of media scrutiny sometimes on these issues you just think that like something as important has happened by someone who's in public office and and yeah um, I mean the debate's been different in Scotland around the Gender Recognition Act because um, it's devolved to Scotland because of their separate legal system um, and um, whereas it's Westminster government who decides on gender recognition for England and Wales is the short answer on that. What was I think relatively impressive was um, the Welsh government's response to some of the recent activity of the UK government. So when all these rumours were going around that the UK government might even use this as an opportunity to roll back trans rights and play the cultural game, actually at a time where the UK Labour leadership were being fairly silent um, in commenting on this, um, there was a pretty quick and strong response to the Welsh government's commitment to opposing any steps to roll back, uh, roll back trans, trans rights, its commitment to protect the trans people of Wales from any such measures. And that came out from um, from Jane Hutt and from Jeremy Miles. And I think, you know, credit to them for that, because I think it did provide a lot of comfort to Welsh trans people who were a bit nervous at the time. But for me, the question is always, while it's important to have these commitments and these statements, there is so much, even if the Gender Recognition Act doesn't come to Wales, that needs to be done to support trans people in Wales from the government. And in a way, the debate about the Gender Recognition Act has sucked away attention from a lot of other pressing needs that for a lot of trans people are actually more important, more urgent, more day to day than the procedure that they would use to change their birth certificate if they wanted to. And so stuff like access to healthcare services, um, you know, we have this new gender identity clinic um, that has been set up in Cardiff that 
the service still needs a lot of work and investment and um, to fulfill its full potential. You know, people, I've heard quite good things about people who've accessed the new service, but there's also a 23 month waiting list. <laughs> um, so people are waiting years and years to access the treatment that they need. And that is something that I still think needs a lot of potential. We've got this new service here in Wales, which we've never had before, and that's great. But it still has a way to go to deal with some of those underlying problems in terms of access to care. And also, you know, that service only exists for adults. So um, we created the service in Wales to stop Welsh people having to travel to the London clinics in order to access the care they need, which is what Welsh people had to do beforehand. But um, if you're a young person, if you're under the age of 18, you, you still could well be having to travel to London and, and that's not acceptable. So that's a devolved area. That's an area in which the Welsh government could step up. And similarly, you know, we've talked about homelessness and domestic abuse and housing, like actually the provision for LGBT specialist provision around domestic abuse issues in Wales is very, very patchy, very, very area specific there's one service in Cardiff that's a very small service mm. but another clear area in which given the experiences of domestic abuse by trans people needs investment you know it's one thing to have services that are inclusive and open to supporting trans people but actually what is the expertise there to make sure that trans people are not just being accepted into the service but they're getting a good service that's informed about their needs and, and any specialist needs that they might have as a, as a user of that service you know, education, like the Stonewall School reports show that three quarters of trans young people face bullying because they're trans in Wales. And we know that teachers aren't as confident or as knowledgeable as they should be to tackle these issues head on lots of the time. So I think there is so many areas in which we still need to see work ongoing. And I think one of the important issues is to make sure that trans communities are always defining the political debate by what's important to us and not what's important to our haters or our detractors, because these are issues that, that really need um, political attention in Wales. And I think sometimes it gets a bit lost in the noise. And, and when you start talking about real people and their real experiences and their real needs as well, you kind of see that this whole debate about trans inclusion is a bit of a mirage. <laughs> it's just not really what's happening on the ground. And we take the steps that people need us to take on the ground. And then then people can see their importance and, 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 and the need for them. Well, I think there's a proud history in Wales of the, the Labour the Labour movement and the left standing, you know, with LGBT community. I mean, we've done previous episodes on uh, LGSM and so on. Um, and yeah, the golden rule should always be, you know, we stand with oppressed, uh, discriminated against groups. And I hope, you know, I hope that we can like start forging these. Um, well, as Mabley said, you know, one of the most tragic things about the whole issue is that it's positioning, you know, groups of people deliberately against one another. Whereas the way forward should be to focus on, you know, um, commonalities. Um, and as you said earlier, Crash, in the podcast, you know, the, the things that are the, the tr- transphobia, the people who are peddling transphobia are also, you know, they're, they're also going to be peddling homophobia, racism and so on. It's really important now more than ever that, that you know, the socialists actually come together and try to bring bring people together and be inclusive of everyone, um, including, of course, trans people. It's been an unbelievably informative episode. I've got to say, like, thank you so much both of you for coming on and, and explaining in it is you know it's just an incredibly articulate way the, the issues that um 
trans people face. It's been a really, it's been really, really useful for me. I'm sure everyone listening is going to find it useful as well. Before we go, um, we normally do a thing where we ask people to give shout outs to anyone listening, or if you want, you can start beefs with people um, who you don't like. But, um, but yeah, I just wanted to say thanks again. So Crash, is there anyone you'd like to say hello to or um, or to start a beef with? <laughs> no, uh, well, um, oh, before I do, I have one, I have actually one recommendation if people want a, a viewing recommendation for something nice that they can see. Yeah. I'd fully encourage anyone who's interested in trans issues, regardless of your ne- level of knowledge, if you've got a Netflix subscription um, to watch Disclosure which is a documentary, is really, really engaging. It's about the history of trans representation in film and television. And it's like, at times it's hilarious, at times it's really movement. All the interviews are with um, trans people who've taken different roles in this industry, you know, actors, movies, uh, actors, producers, directors, writers, etc. And it's just really, really wholesome, heartwarming, informative. And I think that is the way, you know, human stories and human struggles, that's the way you cut through a lot of this noise. Um, so check out um, Disclosure on Netflix and shout out to um, Laverne Cox, my icon and, and one of my um, one of my favourite people of all time, I guess. Um, I guess shout out to a lot of the, the Cardiff trans singers who I'll um, recommend this to and my, my partner in crime and co-director and, 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 and fellow podcast queen, Sam Hickman, a uh, hyperlocal celebrity. Fantastic. We're all, uh, the podcast is actually sponsored by Netflix, so that, that details <laughs> well. Um, Mabley, is there anyone you'd like to say hello or uh, start a beef with? I'm going to be really cliched and just shout out to my mum, um, <laughs> mainly because, to be fair, like she definitely raised me with um, talking about this stuff from like a young age, and um, you know, along with my grandparents and other members of my family, about you know the importance of like including trans people and um and I think that goes to show how like none of this is a new thing like people you know trans people have always been around like trans allies have always been around so yeah it's important to remember that I agree with I've met Mabley's mum and she is the legend so <laughs> shout out to Mabley's mum right thanks so much for listening everyone um hopefully we'll be doing more um more episodes on trans issues um in the future and again, um, thanks so much to Crash and Mabley for coming on and we will see you all soon. Oh yeah, and also I need to say, sorry, um, make sure that you subscribe to uh, our Patreon and follow us on Twitter uh, at Destination Wales, where you can see all the, all the other podcasts and information about the Patreon and so on. Thank you so much for listening. Bye everyone. Bye.